Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York, I'm pleased to say, Drew Mattis, MetLife Investment Management Chief, Market Strategist. Drew, it looks like the new battleground. We've seen it coming for a while. It's an incremental step in what could be something much more severe. The market, though, fairly relaxed in the face of this. What's your view? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think it's it's because it's just another front, uh, you know, it's not really adding to anything because the big ones really are, you know, what happens with China. And as long as China trade continues to progress, uh, everything else is a little bit of a sideshow. So we were worried about NAFTA because of direct impacts on the U.S. Um, and so that kind of got negotiated, even though it's still kind of ongoing. Uh, if we get a deal with China, it's going to, pardon the pun, trump everything else. Just in terms of the European equity market this morning, though, taking a lot of this in its stride as well, surely Europe, does it have the ability and willingness to respond to a proposed trade war if that's what we do end up with? And I'm not saying that's my base case or anybody's at this point, but let's assume we do. Does Europe have the ability and willingness to respond to that in the same vein the Chinese do? Uh, you know, I, my, my guess would be they don't, uh, simply because uh, China's, you know, kind of going much more on, on a partner-to-partner -partner basis with us. Um, you know, they're a very large part of our economy. We're a very large part of theirs. Uh, I, I think with Europe, uh, they have a lot more to lose. And, and, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that the U.S. is choosing this moment. What about the American economy right now? If I look at the American economy, if I look at the development of GDP, we migrate down. We've got maybe a first quarter that's ugly. Some people even saying below 1%. But you've been resilient at a 2.5%, 2.6% run rate. How do you get there? Uh, well, you get there with the U.S. consumer. Um, and you get there by the fact that, you know, things that people have been worrying about, for example, trade, uh, housing, et cetera, have all actually been very minor net drags on growth or, or even uh, net ads. Uh, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to my good friend, Neil Dutta. He's been talking about the kind of the, the, the rebound in housing activity um, and that being very unusual for late cycle as well. So, um, you know, once again, it suggests like productivity and margins. Uh, if this right. is late cycle, this is the oddest late cycle we've ever seen. You and Neil Dutta, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned him. You, you, there's a gloomy day. John Farrell, there'll be like a gloomy statistic out or whatever. And basically you guys come out and go, yes, it's a gloomy statistic, but... Is the butt under consumption? Is the butt under investment? Is it that net exports will improve away from this trade? I, I think the butt is is that you know for for a lot of this data we've been seeing that there's a reason why it's behaving the way it is in that time frame. Uh, we don't want to always put a rosy outlook on things. And if you look at the last consumer confidence data, for example, it was it was really bad. Uh, but. Uh, it was really bad at a high level. Uh, so it was coming down. Directionally, it's going badly. Um, but on a level basis, it's still extraordinarily high. And we have to keep that in perspective rather than just assuming that every slight downturn in the data uh, and, is a negative. And John, that about describes the mar stock market as well. It's on a level basis, you know what, where we're at Swiss stocks, the SMI, John, I'm sure you know that. I don't know it. The high. Swiss stock exchange in Swiss francs, all-time high today. All-time high. Uh, Drew? Just a brief question on the U.S. economy. Has the United States ever in recent history imported a recession? Uh, it's, it's quite difficult to do, actually. If you, half of U.S. GDP is not just the consumer, but consumer spending on services. Right? So 
uh, going to the doctor, uh, getting the haircut, buying the cup of coffee in the morning. Um, when you see very bad recessions in the U.S., it's when that spending on services turns negative, right? And it doesn't have to turn negative by a lot because it's half of U.S. GDP. But the flip side to that, though, is it's very difficult to drive the U.S. into a recession from so overseas. Cool. It's just really smart. I mean, I mean, it's a really important observation. Well, can we continue the conversation? Yeah, continue, please. Well, I was just wondering so if you had something to I just add. Thought maybe he uses you, phrases like really smart, and he's no, talking about me. I just me. thought <laughs> you'd want an example of service sector spending that comes out of nowhere. Vet bill got sick. Oh, really? And I had to go I'm to the sorry. veterinarian yesterday. Do you know that at my veterinarian, I don't even make, I go to the, I make it right out to the Horace Mann School. You just, you just make the check right out to some prep school in New York City. How much was the bill? I would, for those many minutes, it's like you know, it's like going to the high fancy law firm or something. Are that, you saying that you're that keeping, bill's okay? You're keeping the United States insulated from the weakness of I single-handedly kept Drew Mattis' service series positive yesterday. But Drew, it's an what important it question and something important to explore <clears throat> because I just wonder to what degree we should be obsessing over the weakness abroad if you are exclusively based here in the United States. Good question. So what you want to watch out for is a uh, transmission mechanism through the U.S. markets, particularly the equity yeah. markets. Uh, and this is where the trade war has actually been pronounced, right? People worry about the trade war. Stock prices go down. CEOs look at their stock prices going down and think to themselves, I can't have my stock price go down. I need to figure out a way to, to kind of encourage people to believe that my stock is better than everyone else's stock. Um, so... When the problem occurs is when they look at that and they say, I know, I'm going to cut jobs or cut investments in order to kind of make sure that my numbers look good. Um, and, and if you have enough people doing that at the same time, you, you end up talking your way into a recession. I think that's what you have to worry about. Drew Mattis, great to catch up with you. Met Life Investment Management really Chief, really Market Strategist on Europe. The, the, the chances of a trade war, Tom, the chances, we should say. In Washington, lots going on. We'll get to that in a moment with Henrietta Trace on immigration, the shocks that we saw yesterday, whatever your politics. Let us digress to a conversation that was different at 12 noon yesterday than it is now at 8.02 Wall Street time. Henrietta Trace is with Veda Partners. She spent a lot of time really focused on the border, and that discussion changed yesterday. Henrietta, how did you respond to is the languages of the moment a purge of Homeland Security? I, I think it's incredibly important and underappreciated right now. The purge at Homeland Security is exclusively to do with the U.S.-Mexico border, which, of course, is about immigration. But my concern and investors' concern is that cargo and freight is being seriously tripped up at the border um, to the point now where I understand from manufacturers they are running out of inventory of the supply chains that they yeah. depend on from Mexico. Um, so I think that the, the, the shipping and the right. issue of that is the most important now. I mean, we're, we're going to speak with Senator Grassley here, and he's making the rounds today. But what oh, can great. Capitol Hill do to amend, adjust, assuage? What can Capitol Hill do to amend these announcements of yesterday? 
Uh, honestly, I don't think there's very much they can do. When I speak with um, Ways and Means Senior Counsel on the trade committees, what they tell me is they can't move the USMCA. They can't alleviate concerns that the president has with, say, NAFTA. They can't move anything legislatively while this border crisis is happening. And as we head into Holy Week right. next week, it's expected to be compounded. Well, within the border crisis, I want to go to one single sentence in the Washington Post today, which is the idea of substantial, quote unquote, Central American families lined up at the border, which is clearly the emotion of the president of the United States. And I understand how that gets in the way of normal trade at El Paso, et cetera. Is that going to go away or is there a permanence to the countable number of people at the border who want in? I don't think this is going to go away, and I think it's going to get worse. Um, actually, I was speaking with some folks down on the border yesterday, and they tell me that um, the administration is looking to bring in federal agents from every single sector and agency that's available outside of narcotics and terrorism. So that means more federal agents at the southern border, which is creating these tremendous backlogs and um, really vetting really thoroughly the um, request for asylum whether or not, you know, people, when they are saying, I can't go back home, it's too dangerous for me, the federal government, the Trump administration, at least, is going to try to really do some due diligence and understand whether or not that threat is real. And so that's going to be more time consuming, more folks are going to be vetted in a more aggressive manner. And this will likely not end at least for the next month is my expectation. So Henrietta, let's talk about the economic reality of all of this. Typically, we think of the United States as rather insulated from international trade issues, but that southern border is important. When does the reality of that start to bite? I think it's I think it's starting literally as we speak. So the drivers that are bringing goods to and from Mexico to various plants, you know, it's so integrated. We've been dealing with NAFTA since 1995, and these businesses don't have you know big warehouses with with caches of whatever you know widget they need to import or put into their car assembly. So they rely on this constant flow of traffic between the U.S. and Mexico, and it's roughly one and a half billion dollars per day. And so tie ups at the cargo side of, you know, two hours is meaningfully impactful because uh, the driver can't make his next shipment. He can't run on time. And speaking with the manufacturers associations yesterday, the expectation is that the manufacturing plants are going to have to cut entire lines of production because they don't have certain components to plug into whatever their final product is. To what degree, if at all, does this issue, these issues fold into the holdup of USMCA at the moment? It's a hundred percent hold up. Uh, it, that's that's exactly what Ways and Means was saying yesterday. Even well-intentioned Democrats who want to push the USMCA forward can't get their members to have a conversation about, say, you know, labor standards down in Mexico or environmental regulatory oversight uh, or enforcement for that matter, because all they can talk about is the crisis at the southern border that is growing by the hour. What do we want from the Mexican government? I mean, I assume President Trump has a very clear, boisterous Trumpian statement on what he wants. What does business want from the Mexican government to assist us out of this quagmire? 
I think what I, what I've noticed is that they are looking for um, the Mexican government to take this vote on labor enforcement, which they're planning to do, I believe, this week, if I'm not mistaken, um, and then quickly give some deliverables to the Democrats on Capitol Hill who are looking not just to see passage of legislation about labor enforcement, uh, but actual action from Mexico. So for the business community, whose number one priority is just making sure that NAFTA is maintained, you know, Forget about U.S.-China or the new EU tariffs or any of yeah. the overarching trade issues. This is just about, as you, as you mentioned a minute ago, how important it is, how integrated our, our Mexico and U.S. supply chains are. They have to have this open. So for, I think, right. businesses right now, they want the, the, the backlog cleared up at the border about physical imports, but mostly they want to protect NAFTA. Is Stephen Miller aware of Henrietta Trey's conversation? Is he aware of the trade issues or do you just look at the White House and I guess he's our director of immigration as being uniquely fixed on the social issues? I, I, I consider USTR Bob Lighthizer to be the one who's principally focused on all these trade issues, and this complicates his life dramatically. Um, but I think Stephen Miller is much more in the camp of immigration. And when you look at President Trump and what his priorities are heading into an election, I think it's very clear that he's right. more focused on immigration than trade. Very so valuable. Yeah. Well, Henrietta, thank you so much. Very Henrietta, valuable thank briefing. You. Really good there thank on the you. trade dynamics wrapped around these political emotions. Henrietta Trays with Veda Partners. To get us up to speed on the next 24 hours, looking forward to catching up right now with Laura Rosener, Senior Economist at Macro Policy Perspectives. Laura, great to have you with us on the program. Let's just begin with the next 24 hours. What are you looking for from CPI, that print, in 24 hours' time and Fed minutes that come up a little bit later? Hi, Jonathan. Great to talk to you, too. So um, we think we're in a soft patch for core inflation, and we think tomorrow's report will confirm that. We're looking for only a 0.1% month-on-month gain in core CPI and for the annual rate to actually decline from 2.1 to 2. And now remember, the Fed's target is specified in terms of core PCE inflation. This is CPI, which is generally a little bit higher. So this actually implies core PCE inflation is moderating close to 1.7% probably by the end of this year. So we're moving away from target. Laura, you've got a very important paragraph, and it really goes to your work with Julia at BNP Paribas over the years, and that is technology imputing disinflation and deflation. John mentioned this earlier on recessions from abroad. Are, are, are we just are we seeing a disinflation because of all this modern technology that's overlaid on our everyday lives? Absolutely. Um, so the way we think about it is that technology plays a peekaboo role in depressing inflation. It doesn't show up every month. It rotates from component to component, but it is a trend. And the trend is that we have a lot of innovations, faster internet, you know, mobile devices, cloud computing, along with the growth of digital content, electronic marketplaces, the sharing economy, all of these things put downward pressure on prices. What do they do to GDP? But the money question here is how many tenths of a percentage point is not seen in GDP because all of this wonderment. 
I mean, that's that's a fair argument. You know, some people have looked closely at whether, you know, there are measurement issues in, in, in estimating productivity growth, but they actually have found that that doesn't explain a whole lot. So this okay. is something that is depressing inflation, but uh, in terms of a measurement issue, there isn't strong evidence that that explains right. low productivity. Do you buy this, John? Do you buy this idea that all this technology overlays not in GDP? I think there's a massive argument behind that Tom and I think a lot of people are making it. Uh, Laura another argument I want to sort of get through with you is the distinction between PCE and CPI. What is the clear distinction between the two gauges of inflation? Well they're they're different measures, they're conceptually different. PCE covers a wider set of prices. It covers public sector uh, goods and services that are bought and purchased on behalf of individuals. Those aren't included in, in CPI. And in fact, it's the public sector purchases that we're seeing a lot of disinflation in, and healthcare is one example. So the government is a key setter, price setter in the market for healthcare. It has rising obligations associated with an aging population. Um, it sets prices again. It, the Medicare and Medicaid expenditures are about 40% of the the total healthcare market. So it's pricing decisions affect other prices, and it's incentivized to set those prices low. So that's a source of inflation repression that we're seeing more in PCE and CPI, but it's quite important. It's one factor that is keeping the inflation environment very muted. And Laura, for a lot of people who might have accidentally stumbled across Bloomberg Radio not intending to listen to financial news this morning, their reality and what they live just in terms of inflation is not what they hear when they listen to programs like this. We say that inflation's low, it's below target. That's not the America, that's not the Europe that some people are living. That's true. I mean, again, this is the average basket for the average, you know, individual in the U.S. It's not reflective of individual experiences in specific areas. So, you know, one example of that is is rental, how you know, apartment rents, which have been rising so much. And I think a lot of people feel that burden. We actually see that is slowing somewhat. Um, so rent growth has been very strong over the course of this expansion. It has added to inflation when the unemployment rate was really high so it yeah. kind of accounts for some missing inflation now we think that's starting to moderate well to provide clarity here for our audience what is the inflation rate blending services and goods right now where does macro policy put that so we expect overall core so that strips out food and energy we think we're going to moderate to two percent uh, on a year-on-year basis, and we see that over the course of the next two years, moderating slightly below moderating. 2% to about yeah. 1.9 or 1.8. So prices are wow. rising on a year-on-year basis a little bit under 2%, which is right. the Fed's mandate. Laura Rossner, thank you so much for the macro Thanks, policy Laura. perspectives. And John, that goes right to Mr. Draghi tomorrow. If you have the same conversation in Europe, I mean, where do you put that run rate for Europe? Oof. What, 1.4? I am really looking Europe? forward to that news conference tomorrow. There is an election today. Well, no, not some of the primaries or the small elections of the United Kingdom, Newport, south of Wales and all that, or maybe elections in the United States, but a ginormous and important election 
in Israel, of course, involving uh, Mr. Netanyahu. We have the perfect guest to provide perspective, not one, but two tours of duty. His ambassador of the United States to Israel, Martin Indyk, joins us, of course, with the Council on Foreign Relations and a distinguished fellow. Martin, within the news reporting, there is discussion of the election, some focused, less focused. What is the single salient point you would make about this moment for Israel? Morning, Tom. Well, um, the moment itself is is one in which uh, Israel is strong, enjoys strong relationships with uh, the major powers, not just uh, its traditional ally in the United States, but China uh, and Russia, uh, and India and uh, emerging relationships with the Arab world. So things are pretty good for Israel at the moment. And of course, uh, Netanyahu has a strong backing of Trump. So the moment is really about Netanyahu himself and whether the people of Israel decide that they've had enough of him after 10 continuous years of rule uh, and corruption charges against him uh, and a sense of, of a kind of royalty ruling Israel. Uh, whether they're ready for a change or, or whether they uh, want to uh, stick with the secure uh, uh, Netanyahu. Who is the other side? Who is the alternative vote for the people of Israel this day? The leader of the opposing uh, uh, forces is, is uh, Benny Gantz. He's former uh, Israeli army uh, chief of staff, and he has around him three other uh, Two other uh, chiefs of staff, uh, Gabi Ashkenazi and uh, Bogi Yalon, and uh, uh, Yair Lapid, who's quite an attractive uh, former anchor like yourself, Tom, uh, but uh, has become quite a fixture on the political scene as a centrist. So it's really a centrist, security-oriented alternative that's being presented. What, what's the mood of the people? I mean, with the election going, I don't want to get into any polling data or, or that, but is Israel completely focused on this election, or is it just another cycle with Mr. Netanyahu? Oh, Israelis take their elections very seriously. Yeah, yeah. Big turnout uh, could be inspected. It always has been up in the, in the, in the high 60s, 70% turnout, which is, which is huge compared to the United States. Uh, it's a it's a raucous, rambunctious uh, uh, election scene out over there, uh, and and uh, I think that that the other element that's important to remember is that there are many parties. I think something like twenty seven parties contesting this. This is a proportional representation election in which the percentage yeah. of votes that you get determines the number of seats that you get. So whoever wins, whether it's Gantz or, or Netanyahu. Uh, they're going to have to cobble together a coalition with smaller parties that are really boutique parties for the religious, for for uh, the right wing, for the center, right. and the left. Is Mr. Netanyahu a centrist who's been forced to the right, or is he comfortable with the boutique parties of the far right in Israel? He, I would say he's a, a center-right uh, person himself in terms of his preferences and personality, but he is above all a survivalist uh, and a very good one at that. And that has led him uh, in the the recent past to form a coalition government of the right and extreme right and religious parties. And that has proved to be a stable government uh, for him at the last go round. And so I think that will be his preference again, even though it does 
uh, push him towards positions to the more extreme than he would otherwise establish. If you're just joining us, Martin Indyk with us with the Council on Foreign Relations and, of course, two uh, tours uh, as ambassador of the United States to Israel uh, as well. Ambassador Indyk, I must take time on the Golan Heights. There are the photographs of the heights, the plateau, looking down in the Sea of Galilee. I think for so many Americans removed from 1967 and the other wars of the region, it's like, yeah, okay, Golan Heights. Explain to our audience the importance of the Golan Heights and why President Trump's announcement was so critical. Well, you're right. They are the heights, and they do look down on on, um, Israel's uh, northern uh, valleys. And uh, as a result, there is uh, an inbuilt sense of concern about what would happen if the Syrians uh, controlled those heights again, as they did before 1967, uh, when Israel occupied them in a defensive war. The the, uh, fact of the matter is, however, uh, that five Israeli prime ministers, including uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, have offered uh, to withdraw fully from the Golan Heights to uh, uh, the valleys in order to achieve peace with Syria. And that's the negotiations that took place in the 1990s, which I was involved in, mm-hmm. led, led to a basic agreement on that in which the Syrian army would not move beyond Damascus, which is on the other side of right. the heights. Uh, and therefore, it was possible to establish demilitarized zones, much like you have in the Sinai, that have secured the peace between Israel and Egypt uh, over more than four decades now. So, uh, you know, it's not impossible to work out security arrangements, but it's certainly impossible today when you, you have such chaos in, in Syria and the Iranians pushing their militias to move to the uh, Syrian side of the Golan Heights. Nobody is ever suggesting that Israel should withdraw at this point. But to recognize Israel's sovereignty there was to do something else that I think is, is very damaging um, for the United States, which uh, is to undermine a basic principle of international relations. That is the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force. If we go down that road, Putin's acquisition of uh, Crimea becomes legitimate. Xi Jinping, uh, China's acquisition of Tibet right. becomes legitimate. Uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait becomes legitimate. And so I think that's the danger in, mm. in what Trump did here. Ambassador, a delicate question. If the State Department has changed to be polite, whether it's Tillerson or Pompeo, whatever the phrase is, do you have an optimism that over the years, over the administration, or administrations, plural, I should say, that we can get our State Department and our diplomacy back to the time of Martin Indyk or even back to the time of Henry Kissinger? Uh, Yes, I think so, but it's going to be difficult. Uh, Pompeo came in after the the havoc that Tillerson wrought, particularly at the highest levels of the professional foreign service, uh, and has not yet been able to reestablish uh, the the corpus that that uh, was operating uh, the bureau- bureaucratic side of the State Department for so many years. These are very professional people that have been uh, treated badly, treated as if they were not professional uh, civil servants. Um, the top echelons uh, that are normally peopled by the professional bureaucrats 
uh, no longer, uh, those positions are simply not filled at the moment. And and if this continues, you've also got uh, large numbers of, of women and people of colour who are no longer uh, seeking those positions. Oh. Uh, and so the diversity that, that used to be there is starting to slip away as well. So I'm very worried about it. I think Pompeo has good intentions, but uh, given the way that overall there's an attitude coming out of the White House of disdain for the uh, civil servants, of a sense that they're part of some deep state that's opposed to President Trump and his policies, I think is, is really making it difficult. And I think it's a mistake yeah. to view the, the civil service that way. And, and I think that the United States will be worse off, not just in foreign policy, but more generally, because of this uh, uh, sustained right. attitude. Ambassador, honored to have you with us this day of elections in Israel. Martin Indyk, the Council on Foreign Relations, the former ambassador of the United States to Israel. Sarah McGregor with us now with Bloomberg News Economics. A lot of critics in the last number of days, Sarah, over this IMF process, but the fact is they're using the best tools they can, aren't they? I mean, they have to take the information that they're getting on the ground from, from the countries, and I think it is pretty significant, this cut that we're seeing today. It's the third time the IMF has downgraded its global outlook in the past six months, and it talks about these downside risks, and overnight we saw the U.S. threaten to put tariffs, more tariffs on the EU, and one of the downside risks it sees is this trade war, and so you can imagine that as of today, already we can see that the forecast is looking even gloomier than what they may have seen uh, when they you know, compiled this report. They sub it out to uh, net export I guess trade volume and, and world uh, trade uh, growth. Folks, the equation Y equals C plus I plus G and on the back end is net exports. Is this IMF meeting, Sarah, going to be all about trade dynamic or can they actually talk about business as usual? Absolutely. I think trade will be right up there high on the agenda. It's clear that the Trump administration is keen on continuing continuing to use these tariffs as a tool of its trade policy. And now it seems to be opening up even wider this front against Europe, its allies. It hasn't resolved the steel tariffs with Mexico and Canada, which means the new NAFTA isn't passed. And I think that countries are really getting agitated, you know, foreign trading partners about what this is going to mean for them. Sarah, one of the top headlines on the Bloomberg terminal here that really caught my eye is that the IMF cuts its 2019 global outlook to the lowest since the financial crisis. So about 10 years. Does the level of its uh, outlook reduction surprise you at all? In, as, as a headline, it does seem surprising, right? But I think, um, you know, the one sort of silver lining that they seem to emphasize actually in the report is that they actually see things potentially improving in the second half of next year. And a lot of that's attributed to this um, rate hike pause that the Fed has taken and some of the other central banks, you know, the stimulus and the, the measures they're taking. But of course, there's no guarantee that the Fed's going to, um, you know, keep its policy on hold. It's sort of indicated yeah. right now that's what it's looking at. But um, you know, there's really a lot of balls in the air with this forecast. Paul, I like what Sarah and her team wrote up here, the idea of blame Europe. I mean, it's usual McGregor yep. rudeness uh, <laughs> there. But can I note, Paul, that not only are we blaming Europe for the markdown, but we actually raised China growth a tenth of a percent. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, uh, you know, we 
thought we saw some uh, green shoots, uh, Tom, in China. The bamboo the last, shoots. The bamboo shoots. HSBC, Thank you. bamboo shoots. Let's, let's be correct. Over the last couple of months, and I think that might be, in, including some fiscal stimulus and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, Sarah, I mean, is there too early to call? I mean, what is the kind of the view on China here? Again, is it is it best just to kind of call it a stabilization from the IMS perspective? Well, absolutely. It's interesting because just I think even a few weeks or months ago, I think there was quite a um, pessimistic view about China. And now they've had some good manufacturing data. And again, this small but, you know, notable boost to their forecast. While we should note that the uh, IMF actually cut the U.S. forecast again for 2019. You know, again, this is sort of an idea of the leverage that China might try and take from these trade talks too, at a pivotal moment with the U.S. showing, look, we're, we're maybe a little bit stronger than you guys think we are right now. Yeah, I think that's pretty. That that's a key point because we go into these trade neg- negotiations. One of the questions always is: is which side needs it more? And I think one of the uh, narratives on it, you know, the China needs it more was, boy, their account, their economy really is slowing, uh, and that the last they can they can afford is uh, another round of tariffs from the U.S. But this data suggests that uh, they might be in a better position. Absolutely. Again, it's small. That the, the uh, IMF did cut by a tenth of a percentage point, the China's forecast for 2020. But again, it's just a, a bit of an outlook. You know, if you, if you compare that, let's say, with even Europe, where Germany, Italy, France, their forecast was cut again with yeah. pretty big fundamental problems um, identified there. You know, China doesn't look so bad right now, does it? Sarah McGregor, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.